Let's pray together. God, would you show us Christ today? Show us Christ in your word. These words that are powerful, that go before us, guided by your spirit to convict us of sin and righteousness and judgment. Sometimes your words break us down, but God, they do that in order to rebuild us into Christ, to be like Christ. Would you use this word to build this body, to be a pleasing dwelling place for your spirit? Build us up to be on mission to reap a wonderful harvest for your glory. Where else can we go to be empowered for this great task? We trust you and your word to do that for us today. We trust that you will answer this because of Jesus and for his glory. Amen. There are many things in our world that just seem so unfair. I know you've all experienced them and they tend to make us desperate for somebody to do something. Why doesn't someone do something? So our society kills millions of children in the womb before they ever get to take their first breath. So so unfair. Or hundreds of years of societal structures seem to favor some people over others. Why does it cost so much and take so long to adopt children when there's such a great need? Or maybe you've spent some time in rehab or a couple weeks in jail and you're ready to rebuild your life, but you cannot find a house or a job. Maybe we need to change our laws. We need someone to do something. Maybe we need a modern Robin Hood. Remember the story of Robin Hood. King Richard has gone off to war to fight the good war on behalf of the kingdom and his nephew, Prince John, is sitting on the throne in his place, but he does not lead well. The sheriff of Nottingham is going around taxing every citizen right into poverty so that Prince John can get rich. And one man named Robin of Loxley, he was a wealthy man who was a good man, used his land to help his neighbors. He was taxed into poverty himself, his land taken away from him, forced to live in the woods, foraging for a meager existence, but he was tired of it. So he gathers a band of men to fight back. They're going to take what's rightfully theirs and restore justice to the land. This Robin Hood tale connects with our own perceived injustices and makes us bold to want some action. We know the little guy can prevail and we need to stick together. We need to push back and overthrow these evil systems. We need more heroes among us like Robin Hood, right? But if that's what the story inspires in you, it's appealing more to your own idolatry than to God's truth. Because the hero of the story isn't actually Robin Hood. He was just trying to survive and maybe help a few of his friends survive. And he'd call out injustice when he saw it. But he knew he was completely powerless to overthrow this corrupt system. So he had hope beyond himself in the return of the king. He longed for King Richard to return and make things right. The real hero of the story is King Richard. 
He was a good king, but while he was away at war, someone snuck in and corrupted his kingdom. What the people needed wasn't an uprising, but their king to return to the land. And when he arrives, he is going to clean house and set things right, put people back to their good and honest work again. I think the reason that story is so timeless isn't because it connects with so many cultural experiences, but it retells the old, old story of God's kingdom and what He promises to do to set things right in the land. See, from the very beginning of the Bible, we see that God is King of the entire universe and He created the earth, a special land for Humans, people, men and women like us, to be kings over the land, to have dominion, to rule as God's representatives. But right away we blew it. Corruption set in, injustice covered the entire earth. In the Old Testament, the whole thing is filled with story after story after story of people trying to fix it. Maybe we need new leadership, a new king, or a new government structure. We need new laws. Or maybe if we just partner with some other nations. And none of it worked. It actually made it much worse. There was a faithful remnant trying to stay loyal to the king, but they were mostly scattered throughout the wilderness just trying to survive, living in their own Sherwood forest, waiting for the king to return knowing that they were powerful to upset the system. But God promised those faithful remnant, I will send the king. The king will return. Set things right. Clean out the corrupt leadership and put you back to work as representatives of the kingdom on earth. And we've seen over the last year and a half now, I think, through the book of Matthew. Is that how long we've been doing this? that the whole Gospel of Matthew is specifically written to tell us that the King has returned. He's here. He's a King, though, like unlike any the world has ever seen. Born in a stable? In a little country village up north? He had no aspirations for self-exaltation. In fact, he seemed to serve everybody else at every chance he got. He appeared from every look that he was just an ordinary man. Yet he had an extraordinary grasp of how the world works and a great knowledge of God's commands. He has shown himself to be the king. The king, last week we saw, has arrived in Jerusalem. Jake showed us, he preached to us, that Jesus is the reigning king, the true king, that the people cried out for deliverance. Finally, the Son of David has arrived. The eternal King would sit on the throne forever. Peace is on its way. And surprisingly, when he entered the city, he didn't walk to Herod's palace and kick Herod out and sit on the throne. He went straight to the temple where his true throne was. He's not your typical human king. His reign is heavenly. But his palace has become overrun with crooks and corrupt politicians. So last week we saw, which was actually the day before today, he threw the thieves out of the temple. These thieves trying to make a buck off of the disadvantaged in the nation. And now he's going to 
boot out these corrupt leaders right to the curb. So our main idea today is the king has come to clean house and he's restoring order to the kingdom. And the first step in that process is establishing that he's got the right to do so. So in verses 23 to 27, we address the question of the king's heavenly authority. And then after that, he explains who his loyal kingdom citizens are. In verses 28 to 32, there we see the king's faithful followers. And in the last long parable in verses 33 to 46, Jesus shows us that everything the people experienced, it will be upturned, overturned in his new nation. So let's begin this huge section of text that we don't have all day to go through with just the first couple of verses in 23 to 24. When he entered the temple, the chief priests and the elders of the people came up to him as he was teaching and said, by what authority are you doing these things? And who gave you this authority? Jesus answered them, I also will ask you one question. And if you tell me the answer, then I also will tell you by what authority I do these things. Now, Jesus has only been in Jerusalem for a day. One day he has spent here and he's already got the entire establishment nervous. With the events of the previous day, how he marched into Jerusalem with such fanfare, like he was some kind of king, and then clears out the temple like he's the priest in charge. The priests and the elders there are wondering, who died and made this guy king? Seriously, who does this guy think he is? Isn't that the villager from north in Galilee that the Pharisees had to go up and put in his place? Look at his followers. You gotta be kidding me, right? These blind, lame, uneducated losers? What kind of king is this guy? See, the, the priests, they had clear, established authority to run the affairs of Israel. So they're asking him, show us your credentials, Jesus. And I love how Jesus answers. He doesn't, actually. This is a great model of how we can engage the world. Instead of answering, ask more questions. If you have to explain yourself all the time, you're automatically losing the discussion, losing the argument, because you're submitting yourself to someone else's control. You're legitimizing their own perceived authority. So whoever asks the questions has the authority. This is something that took me a long time to learn. Thankfully, I didn't become a pastor until later in that journey. So to be a better evangelist, I used to read so many apologetics websites, trying to figure out every single possible answer for every conceived objection I might encounter. And then I was always fearful and I get into a discussion and I'm, oh, I got to remember this thing and that thing. And how do I answer that? And I'm always on the defensive. I was in the weaker position, unknowingly letting everyone else define the terms of the argument instead of using questions to focus it right back on Christ crucified. So when you ask the questions, you are the one that has control. And that's what Jesus is doing here. He's the king. He doesn't need to submit to their interrogation. He's not on trial. He's the prosecutor. They should answer to him. So he asks the question about someone else's authority, that of John the Baptist. Tell me, guys, 
Who is this John the Baptist? Was he just some crazy wilderness preacher? Or was he a legitimate prophet of God? So Jesus is linking his own authority to John the Baptist. John, the forerunner to the Messiah, the promised Elijah, speaking God's words of truth, proclaiming the coming king, representing his righteousness. The two are a package deal. John is the herald of King Jesus. They come together. If you accept John's authority, you must clearly be able to see Jesus' authority. But if you reject John's authority, you simply reveal that you're an ignorant fool. Because clearly John was from God. He knew the words of Scripture. He lived righteousness so much that he confronted the Roman government and lost his head for it. That is a prophet if there ever was one. So now the leaders are trapped. What's worse? Submit to Jesus or look like a fool? They choose neither. They'd say, well, I don't know. I'll just pretend like it's not an important question. And this is really the answer that most people in our world today give. They hear something about Jesus and they think, oh, he seems like a pretty nice guy. Yes, Jesus has some good teachings that maybe we should all consider. But submit to him? No way. Oh, that's such a dirty word. Don't say this submit word again. It's just easier to keep him up there in Galilee or maybe there in ancient history without being confronted with his authority. So this is the choice that everyone here in this room needs to make and that we're told to bring to the world. What are you going to do with Jesus' authority? What authority does he have over you? If he's the king of the world, if he has risen from the dead, he has all authority in heaven and earth. Authority over life and death. And you had better submit to Him. There's no fence sitting. You don't just keep Him in your pocket for a nice flowery, inspirational quote once in a while. He's not just a get-out-of-hell-free card. He is the reigning King. You're either with Him or against Him. What will you do with His authority? Ignore it? Or submit to it. Well, the religious rulers, they made their choice by ignoring it. They are too proud. They can't prove he's not the king, but they just can't bring themselves to submit to him either. So Jesus gives his answer in verse 27. Neither will I tell you by what authority I do these things. The answer is so obvious but they just want to trap him. They want him to say the words, I am the king, so they can condemn him. But he won't give them that satisfaction. Of course he's the king. He has all authority in heaven and on earth. But he is going to use it not for himself, but to save his people from such sinful, corrupt leadership. And so we turn our attention to the next parable in verses 28 to 32 and see who are the king's faithful followers. It's kind of ironic to even call them faithful followers, considering their sordid past. And from the perspective of the religious leaders, it's almost sacrilegious to even call them faithful followers. You've got to be kidding me, right? Tax collectors and prostitutes are faithful. They're thinking, uh, we're the faithful ones. 
We are the ones guarding the temple. We're the ones keeping the law. Jesus can't possibly be the king with these sinners following him. In this section then, Jesus is telling the story of the prodigal son, really. This the abridged version. An owner has two sons and he tells them both, go out into my vineyard and do some work. And the first one says, oh, no, I'm not submitting to you. And he goes off and realizes, okay, it's good work. I better get back to working in the vineyard. The other one says, yeah, dad, Oh, I love your commands. I'm going to do it. I'm going to make you so proud. I'm the best son you've ever had. I can do really good work. You should see the type of work I've been doing. I, I, I practice really well, and, you know, I just really want to honor you. And he just keeps on talking. All talk and no walk, he doesn't get to work. So Jesus asked, which one of these actually did the will of their father? And they reply with the obvious answer. They might be blind to Jesus' true identity, but they could still reason through some basic logical propositions. Deeds matter more than simple words. Duh. And who's done greater deeds than the priests and Pharisees? Am I right? Except they've got a little miscalculation in their logic. They have grossly overestimated the value of their own goodness. They thought God was so impressed to have them as workers in his vineyard. But Jesus said, nope, it's all talk, buddy. That's nothing of value. Your work is so worthless that tax collectors and prostitutes go into the kingdom before you. So these guys just couldn't see how far off from God they were. They are actually as far away from God as tax collectors and prostitutes. The worst people in society, they thought. But at least the tax collectors and prostitutes repented of their sin. The leaders did not. So John the Baptist comes to the Jordan River preaching, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. He's a preacher of righteousness. It's right here. Take a look at righteousness. And the tax collectors and prostitutes look at it and go, we're in trouble. The king is about to arrive. We need to repent. And they follow. They do what was right. But the leaders stand there and watch John the Baptist compare themselves to the list of righteousness and go, nailed it. Good job. We're some good people, aren't we, guys? Not like any of those disgusting people. But Jesus says, there are no faithful followers of God the King. All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. There is not one righteous in the world. The only way to get into the kingdom, whether you are a priest or a prostitute, is to repent and beg the King for mercy. The tax collectors and prostitutes did that. They were the first who said no initially, ruined their lives and came back looking for mercy. The leaders said, nope, they are the first son. Said yes, but didn't do any actual work. They just kept talking themselves right down the path to hell. But that's not probably how they saw it. They're probably thinking they have nothing to repent of. Because you know what, Jesus 
It's a nice parable, but you have somewhat of a false dichotomy going on here. There's more than two options. You said there's the one option of saying no, but actually doing it, and the other option of saying yes and not doing the work. But the third option is we said we would do the work, and we are doing it. Look at us. We got this down. And so Jesus gives them this parable of the vineyard in verses 33 to 46 to say that they are stealing glory, stealing fruit from God. So the king has sent his son to clean house and establish his new nation. Let's read it just a few verses beginning in verses 30, verse 33. Here another parable. There was a master of a house who planted a vineyard and he put a fence around it and dug a wine press in it and built a tower and leased it all to tenants. And he went into another country. When the season for fruit drew near, his, he sent his servants to the tenant to get his fruit. And this imagery is very familiar to the ancient Israelites. A wealthy landowner had lots of land, could plenty afford to go off and live somewhere else and just rent his land out to other farmers. It was a mutually beneficial arrangement. He had enough money to survive. He got a little extra through rent and the tenant farmers could come in and make a bunch of money on their own, keep most of it, but hold a little bit back to pay rent. And so our parable now says that when the harvest season arrived, the owner sent his servants to go collect rent. It's time. Pay me for using the land. And then the story just spins out of control into absurdity. The tenant farmers beat and kill every servant who sent. The owner can't believe such rebellion, so he thinks, I'm going to get my payment by sending my own son, the heir to my property. He has as much authority over this land as I do. But they want to kill him too. Somehow, in their logic, thinking that killing the son is going to let them keep the land. It doesn't make any sense. But that's kind of the point. That's how foolish sin is. That's how foolish we are when we think we've got control and we've got it all in order. Thinking you can manipulate your way to prosperity at others' expense or thinking that you can rebel against the king and everything will go right for you. No big deal. You might get away with it for a moment, but justice is coming. The owner is returning to make it right. And Jesus is the son of the landowner sent by the master of the house. The rulers, the religious rulers in Israel, they're the wicked tenants who beat, killed, rejected every prophet who was sent to them. And now they're plotting to kill his son. It's a powerful visual, but it's actually even more condemning than we realize when we first read the text. Because Jesus didn't just make the story up. If these leaders knew their scriptures well at all, they would recognize this story from Isaiah chapter 5. And it's not a good reminder for them. In Isaiah, this is quite a few hundred years before the Israelites had become so unfaithful to God that God compared them to a vineyard that was completely fruitless. There was not one single grape on any vine over the hundreds of acres. And his only recourse then was to show up 
cut them all down, burn it down to the ground, and start over. It was an ugly stage of history in Israel where nobody was faithful to God. God sent prophets to collect the debt they owed, but they refused to hear the prophets. And yet in Jesus' day, it wasn't any better. He picks up on this this same imagery, this parable, and applies it to his same time, saying, it's terrible now, guys. But this time, it's not the ground that's not producing. Quite the contrary, it's greatly plentiful. It's the, the tenants in the land who are wicked. The harvest is plentiful, remember Jesus told us. And we've seen that with the number of people who've been responding to John's and Jesus' messages. The arrival of the kingdom, people are following. Large crowds are following. There's so much fruit to be collected for God. Where are His laborers? He wants His people to be brought in. He wants His harvest. He wants His people to represent His authority in the world, but the religious leaders are actually keeping it from happening. And so they reveal that their authority is a stolen authority. They have no right to be in Israel. They can't tell who John the Baptist is. They don't understand where Jesus came from. They don't seem to have a decent grasp on the law, proving they have no right to be leaders in the temple. Jesus did say, I'm not going to tell you where my authority is from, but this parable is pretty clear. Verse 45 says they even got it. They knew Jesus was talking about them. God was the vineyard owner in Israel's, or in Isaiah's prophecy. And now Jesus is claiming He's the Son God sent to collect their debts. God sent the heir to His throne. The one who had authority to reclaim the land. And they're going to kill him for it. They'll take him outside the vineyard and destroy him. They think that they're going to somehow keep the authority for themselves if they get rid of him. So we see that begin in verse 46. They're plotting to get rid of him. But that won't be the end of his authority. Notice this interesting, seemingly minor detail at the beginning of the parable where the owner builds a tower in his vineyard. We wonder why would someone build something in the middle of their field like that. But in that time, a tower was built for rest or protection, refuge in case some sudden danger came up or you needed rest from your labor. You could go and find rest and protection in that tower. And according to Jewish tradition, that tower came to represent the temple. If Israel's the vineyard, the temple is the tower representing God's presence and his protection. But the leaders lost sight of God as their refuge. And they thought the temple itself was some sort of magic lucky charm that as long as you keep doing those rituals, then you'll be prosperous. But the temple was supposed to point to God's presence. And then when God stood right in front of them, face to face, asking them questions, they rejected Him. He is the true temple. He is the strong tower. They rejected the stone, the only stone that could protect them from their greatest danger. And so Jesus quotes Psalm 118. 
The people actually quoted Psalm 118 at the beginning of this chapter when they cried, Hosanna! Hosanna to the Son of David! Meaning, save us! They recognized Jesus as the King that they needed to redeem them. But in the psalm, it said that when they cried that, it meant they needed salvation from Gentiles. That the Gentile nations were crowding in on them. And Jake showed us last week, That the religious leaders were actually living like Gentiles. The wickedness had infiltrated the nation. They had become the enemies of God. But the psalm also tells us that salvation will come in a way they don't expect. It will come from a rejected stone that becomes the foundation for a beautiful new refuge. Jesus is that rejected stone taken outside of the city and crucified. The righteous king, the only man who ever lived pleasing God the Father, who was killed by rebels. But not just rebels in the first century, those religious rulers. Everyone is a rebel. No matter how good your life looks, how conservative your lifestyle, how many good things you've done with your life, you are a rebel who has not faithfully used your life to represent His kingdom. Your only hope for mercy is the death of the king who gave himself on behalf of his people. Yet that wasn't the end. The stone that the builders rejected and cast outside the city became the foundation for a new nation. Jesus was rejected. But three days later, this stone rose again and laid the foundation for this new nation where the old kingdom of rebellion is done away with and given to a people, he says in verse 43, a new people. The wicked tenants will be replaced with faithful workers who will bring in his fruit when he comes collecting. And he'll crush those who did not give him his allegiance. And now we're left with that same choice as the tax collectors and prostitutes, the priests and the Pharisees. How will we respond to this king and his authority? The king came and lived in perfect righteousness, did what the universal king, the emperor, God the Father, always demanded. And history attests to the fact that he died on a cross, was buried in another man's tomb, rose from the dead three days later. So if that really happened, And we need to think about how that affects our life. If that really happened, he answered the question that the priests were asking at the beginning. Where does your authority come from? He has all authority in heaven and on earth. He got it from God the Father. And so you owe your life to Him. You can't just go on with your life choosing your own path, building your own little kingdom. This truth dramatically alters everything we do. If Jesus is king, he's not just a friend. He's not just a buddy you keep alongside of you. You're either a faithful worker in his vineyard or a wicked tenant. Your only option is to lay your life down at the foot of the cross and beg him for mercy. Lord, have mercy is the refrain we've heard from the poor people throughout this gospel. Hosanna, save us! 
You cry out to Him to save you, and He will. And He'll not only save you from the wrath to come, but the whole point of this parable is that He will send you then as a faithful worker into His vineyard. That's the part I want to leave you with. That's what I want you to remember today. Not only does He save you from the wrath to come, He sends you as a faithful worker into His vineyard. I've only been a pastor for two years now, just a little over two years, the life of this church. And there's something I've noticed as I connect not just with you, but everyone that I have conversations with throughout our region that really concerns me. I feel like we're kind of missing the point of the gospel. We've missed what the gospel does for us and what it calls us to. And we're in danger of losing the gospel because of it. I've had many conversations with well-meaning people that have been taught that Jesus died on the cross so that we can go to heaven when we die. And that's certainly true. And our evangelism methods reinforce that idea that we have a choice. Do you want to go to heaven? Well, then you better trust in Jesus. And that's wonderful news, isn't it? Who wouldn't accept that? Every one of us messed up in this life. And we can have assurance, confidence that when I die, it's going to be good for me. That's just wonderful news. So now that I got that, I'm going to get back to work in this life doing my business. But that's not the message of the Bible. From front to back, beginning to end, God tells us that He made the entire earth to be His kingdom under the representation of people who reflect His glory. But we messed it up. And Jesus has come to make it right, to fix it, to put it all back in order and put us back in faithful labor in the vineyard. He is the King we all failed to be. And if we trust Him, then He puts us back to live as we ought to. Not just someday in heaven, but right now, as the kingdom of heaven breaks in through His people. You are His representatives. Go make the kingdom known in this world. The entire New Testament, then, is an explanation of what life in the kingdom looks like describes the authority or structure of how the tenants relate to one another. It explains how we determine who gets to work in the vineyard and who doesn't. How you get rid of someone who's not being faithful. What we do together when we meet at the strong tower and take a rest tells us about the vineyard we're working in and how we're commanded to go reap a harvest by telling the world about the Son sent by God. We have so much work to do in this life, representing our glorious King. But if you start talking about the work you have to do, those people who just bought into the gospel of going to heaven when I die will accuse you of being a legalist, adding to the gospel. Friends, hear this today. I'm pleading with you to see the gospel Not just as salvation to go to heaven, but as surrendering your life to the King. The King has come. Not just to forgive you to go to heaven someday. He has taken over the land. Cleaned out the corrupt leadership. And now He's placing you who trust in Him to be part of His kingdom. 
You don't just enter the kingdom when you die. You enter it the day you put your trust in the king. And then that choice affects every day of your life. It defines the boundaries of our relationship as a church family. How we interact with one another. We're not just a group of people who meets on Sunday morning for an inspirational message and a few good songs. We are ambassadors. Representatives of the kingdom. We are farmers called to go labor in His vineyard and bring His harvest. So in our work that we do, whether it's Mayo Clinic or at home with your own kids, or in how you love your spouse, train up your children, what you spend your money on or your free time on, all these things God has given you as tools to display your identity and your value and your priorities as kingdom citizens. The king has arrived. He has cleaned out his house. And now he's establishing a new nation, a new Israel for those who repent and trust in him to become rightful heirs of the vineyard. How should you respond to the gospel? Don't just give your life to Jesus. Don't accept Jesus into your heart. Surrender your life to the king and get to work in his field ripe for harvest. Let's pray. God, this is a monumental task that you are calling ex-addicts, ex-idolaters, ex-fornicators, prostitutes, tax collectors, self-proclaimed kings of our own kingdoms, rebels. And you are making us righteous into faithful laborers. We can't do it unless your Spirit makes it possible in us. But I pray you would do it, God. In our weakness, show your strength. Take this band of ragtag followers of Jesus, blind, lame, uneducated fools, and make us righteous. Make us fruitful. Make us into a nation, a kingdom, so that when the world looks at us, they say, who are these people that have a God so near to them and wisdom so knowledgeable on their lips? I must know the love that they have and where it comes from. God, make us a witness in your vineyard that you would receive the fruit, the harvest due, that the world would glorify you because of your Son, Jesus. Amen.